in society for the general spiritual progress of state and community. Such population depends on the chastity and faithfulness of its womanhood, its womanhood of its women. As children are very prone to being misled, prone means inclined or vulnerable, easily misled. As children are very prone to being misled, women are similarly very prone to degradation. Therefore, both children and women require protection by the elder members of the family. By being engaged in various religious practices, women will not be misled into adultery, according to Chanakya Pandit. Women are generally not very intelligent and therefore not trustworthy. So, this is one of those purports. <laughs> So, the different family traditions of religious activities should always engage them, and thus their chastity and devotion will give birth to a good population, eligible for participating in the Varnashram system. On the failure of such Varnashram Dharma, naturally the women become free to act and mix with men, and thus adultery is indulged in at the risk of unwanted population. Irresponsible men also provoke adultery in society. Well, I was going to say what about the men. And thus, unwanted children flood the human race at the risk of war and pestilence. You know what pestilence means? Pestilence is... Um, um, when there are, uh, when there's great contamination, such as when there are pandemics. Uh, that's my understanding of pestilence. It's uh, when there's many pests. You know what a pest is? Excavation site. Uh, pests are unwanted. Usually we think of insects or small animals. Rats. Rats, yeah. Yeah, so when there's plague, for example, that's pestilence. So uh, that's the, okay, that's the end of Shri Prabhupada's purport. Adharma vivavat krishna pradushyanti kulastriya. Sri Shutu Shasu Varshneya Jayate Varnasankara. When irreligion is prominent in a family, O Krishna, the women of the family become polluted, and from the degradation of womanhood, O descendant of Vishnu, comes unwanted population. Arjuna is making his case. He's a bit like a lawyer uh, in a courtroom making a case, uh, in this case, in this situation, of course, his 
making his argument for not fighting in this, uh, in this battle. And it's a quite good argument, uh, or a multiplicity of arguments that he's making. If the Bhagavad Gita would just end with chapter one, <laughs> There are 17 more chapters. Oh, we'll get it in a little translation. Everything okay? Um, I sometimes uh, suggest when people are first reading the Bhagavad Gita, I suggest them to first skip chapter one, <laughs> because uh, especially the first several verses of chapter one, there's so many names, and it's all very strange, and someone might become discouraged just by reading all these different names, and think, what does this have to do with anything? Uh, of course, one could suggest that they start uh, with, let's see, which verse? They might start with uh, verse number, yeah, verse number 21, Arjuna Uvacha. Arjuna said, O infallible one, please draw my chariot between the two armies so that I may see those present here who desire to fight and with whom I must contend in this great trial of arms. So that would be... Um, one could start there and, and you know, understand, could catch what's going on. There's a battle, it's about to happen. Arjuna, it seems to be one of the warriors. And he wants to see, okay, what's happening, who's fighting. And then when he sees, well, who is who, and that's when he starts to become disturbed. Mm. Uh, first we get a picture of his being quite disturbed. Seeing my friends and relatives present before me, in such a fighting spirit, I feel the limbs of my body quivering and my mouth drying up. Um, yeah, I was thinking, even if it's not your relatives and friends and teachers and all, that you're facing in a battle, uh, you still might get the jitters, isn't it? Because it's a battle, and it's going to be a battle to the death. Somebody's going to um, be killed, and somebody's going to survive, but who is it? could be a pretty scary thing. But Arjuna is no ordinary warrior, we understand later, in chapter 11, um, Krishna is going to advise Arjuna 
to stand up and fight, actually several times he says that. Um, but he says uh, mm, that um, he addresses him as oh left-handed one. Um, how does that verse go? He's uh, verse around 33. My brain's not working. Nimit and just be my agent. And Savyasachi, this is a left-handed shooter. <laughs> so the point is that Arjuna is really so expert. He's ambidextrous. He can shoot left and right-handed with uh, equal precision. So it's not. It's probably not that he's just scared. Uh, but he's disturbed by this. Uh, he's disturbed at who he sees. Um, and then, where was it? Yeah, he sees all, and then he becomes disturbed. Okay, he's shaking, and he describes this more how disturbed he is in his his bow. Uh, the Gangiva slips from his hand. Oh, and his skin is burning. Tvak cha eva paridahyate. Dahyate means burning. Paridahyate is burning all over, you can say. Brahmati uh, eva. And his mind is becoming confused, Brahmati. And uh, he sees only opposite results. Um, Pashyami, I see. Viparitani. I see opposite nimittani uh, causes. I see opposite results. And this is, actually, this is, a, I would say, going to be his main argument, that what we're hoping to you know, gain from all of this, we're not going to gain. Uh, we're going to get the opposite of it. And therefore, he says in the next verse, not just Shreya Anapashyami. I don't see any Shreya. I don't see any higher value, any higher, higher good. And this is also interesting uh, from the perspective if we wanted to give a sort of um, analysis of his arguments in terms of. Um, moral philosophy, ethics, um, then one way to understand what is sometimes called normative ethics. <laughs> normative means uh, giving uh, what should be done. So there's descriptive uh, to just describe the way things are, and there's normative saying how things should be. 
so normative ethics is the subject of um, how do we determine what should be done? <laughs> more broadly, ethics can be um, can be what is the good life? How do I gain the good life, that the happy life? But normative ethics is what should I do? And one way that normative ethics is understood is uh, there's, there's two basic questions. What should I do? Um, which means what is the right thing to do? What is the right thing for me to do? In this circumstance, that circumstance, or more generally, what's the good or the, I'm sorry, what's the right thing to do in order to bring about the good? So it's saying that what, what I do has consequences. And are the consequences going to be good or are they going to be bad? It's usually put in terms of good and bad or good and evil. Hmm? So I'm just, we can maybe say more about this, but for now, here, Arjuna is saying, not just Shreya Anupashami, I don't see any good from what, from um, fighting, from, from my taking part in this. I don't see any good in this. I don't see any good result. Um, I don't even want victory, he says. I don't want a kingdom. <laughs> What? The whole point was, <laughs> uh, it was all about fighting for a kingdom. The whole problem was, after how many years? Thirteen years in, uh, uh, in, in being banished. Twelve years plus one year of going into hiding. And uh, Drogadi, during those twelve years, uh, got so furious at her five husbands. She was furious. What are we doing here? We're Kshatriyas. Come on. Don't accept this nonsense 12 years in the forest. This is ridiculous. Get out and fight. And he just said, I made a promise. <laughs> that just makes her more angry. <laughs> That's a famous discussion in Mahabharata. Mahabharata. And then he asks the more general question, Ogovila, what avail, what advantage to us uh, is a kingdom, happiness, or even life itself, when all those for whom we may desire them are now arrayed on this battlefield? Such an amazing question. This is this is deep. Uh, it's deep. Most people would never come to this level of questioning themselves. 
what is the value of having all these things which are supposed to be so valuable uh, if it means at the, it's at the price uh, of all these, uh, of the lives of all of these people. And what I find even uh, more amazing is that those who are standing on the battlefield against the Pandavas were, had been treating the Pandavas in such a nasty way for years and years and years. They were doing everything they could to try to kill the Pandavas. And still Arjuna is saying, oh, there's, I don't even want to live if they um, will be killed. That's pretty amazing. Hmm. He's even saying, better I will be killed. So that's, you know, quite an impressive uh, position he's taking. And then he uh, goes into, I think this would, we can say, starts a new, kind of a new section, uh, verse 36. Sin will overcome us if we slay such aggressors. Um, uh, what is the sin? Well, first of all, it's killing our own kinsmen. Svajanam hikatam hatva sukhina shama. Svajanam, our own people. And uh, they may not understand this, and therefore they are fighting against us. But that's not the issue. He's saying the issue is it's wrong for us uh, to be fighting against our own family, to kill our own family. This, this is a sin. Kulachaya kritam dosham prapasya nihi Kulachaya krita dosha so Kula Chaya, Kula's family, Chaya destruction, Krita, having done uh, Dosham, it's a fault. It's, a, it's, not, it's not good. And now, 39, the verse before this one, uh, Arjuna is giving a little He's giving a little sociology lesson, Vedic sociology lesson, or, uh, or um, Mahabharata sociology. <laughs> uh, or it's, 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 we can say it's Dharma Shastra sociology. Kula Chaye Pranashyanti Kula Dharma Sanatana Dharma Nashte Kulam Kritsnam Adharma Abhivati Uta with the destruction of dynasty. The eternal family tradition is vanquished. Sanatana. Actually, uh, yeah, Prabhupada is trans that's interesting. Prabhupada's translating the word Dharma here as tradition. Uh, or traditions, Kula Dharma, 
So the, the, the family traditions, um, what are they? They are sanatana. They are eternal. You can say eternal or you can say uh, permanent or, you know, persistent, enduring, maybe. Dharma nashte, uh, so this E ending, dharma and nashte, uh, this would be the, uh, I think it's the sati satami. Sati uh, satami, what is it called? Locative. So it's uh, indicating time. When, when religion is destroyed, in the case when religion is destroyed, um, then what? A dharma, a vivavati. Um, there's a, here it says, Abhivavati means transformed. And on the next, this verse, Abhivavat, having become prominent. In any case, the verbal root would be Bhu, uh, <laughs> to be, to exist, Abhivu. Uh, and Abhi is a, gives a strength, sense of prevailing. So, yes, prevails. What, what prevails? Adharma prevails. Um, and, um, and now, with this verse, what we're reading today, he's giving more details what the consequences are of Adharma. <clears throat> and specifically, it has to do with um, the production of Varna Sankara. So, varna sankara, what does it mean literally? Sankara means uh, sankara, going together, doing together, making together. Um, and so it comes to mean mixing, mixed. So, we're talking about a, a, a certain social context here, which for us here in the West is quite foreign. And that's the idea of varnas. Um, and of course, we, we hear, we learn in chapter 4 of the four varnas. Uh, Krishna says he is the creator of this system, chapter varnam Um And so we understand there's something special about it. Krishna is claiming it as. He's not, he's not, let's say, minimally, he's, he's saying, he's not rejecting the Varna system. He's taking responsibility for it. He says, I, I've created it. And um, in this system, there's a notion of uh, make, keeping distinctions. There's, there's two things uh, which are of great concern in uh, Vedic ritual tradition, one is uh, too much difference and the opposite, too much sameness. Uh, there's pritak, which means separate, separateness, and there's something which you may not have heard this word, jami. Jami means, <laughs> like in the English, jammed together sort of merged, sort of 
mixing, making, making a mess. <laughs> so in in uh, in the sort of high ritual uh, of the Vedic sacrifice, there's a concern that distinctions are made, not too much distinction, and uh, and not too much mm, loss of distinction. There's a, there's a looking for a balance. Anyway, varna sankara seems to be understood as a problem. For us in the West, we think, what's, what's the problem? What are we talking about? <laughs> we don't have any varnas. Um, well, from a strictly orthodox Vedic perspective, we're probably all of us varna sankara. And uh, at best. <laughs> Uh, and otherwise, lecha, lecha, uh, yavana. There's various words. It's kind of in Indian uh, Vedic system. Like many cultures of the world, there's always some group that's outside of uh, what's considered civilized. But it's complicated because in India. Uh, the British came, and they were the rulers for 200 years. And um, there was a kind of mixed love-hate relationship, because they were the masters, but they were also untouchables. <laughs> uh, so it's, it's an interesting situation. So, in any case, within this understanding of this sociology, there is a logic. And the logic is that you get, um, as a result of degradation of society, a particular degradation, and that is of the coolest tree, of the, um, the women of the family, uh, and the result is what's called Varnasankara, and when there's Varnasankara, what Prabhupada calls unwanted progeny. We do have this concept, unwanted children, of course. Uh, recently, <laughs> this really struck me, um, one scholar I know uh, who has studied um, mainly North Indian uh, bhakti traditions for most of, most of his career. Recently he wrote a book about Vrindavan. Uh, Vrindavan in the 21st century. It's called Krishna's Playground. Vrindavan in the 21st century. And uh, he's, he spent some time in Vrindavan interviewing a lot of people. And uh, he's kind of painting a picture of how things are changing since the last uh, 20 years. It's quite fascinating what he's written. And in one chapter he's talking about widows in Vrindavan. It's known since, um, I don't know how long it's, it's been the case that uh, there's a tradition that when a woman becomes a widow, her family um, 
I mean, there are some very harsh cases where the family says, go, go and take care of yourself, and they're just left on their own. So then they will go to Vrindavan or some other holy place and they'll join a widow ashram and there they live a very, quite a wretched life. Um, so there are such ashrams in Vrindavan, but um, Professor Jack Holly, who's written this book, mentions uh, a couple of new uh, widow ashrams that have come up. One, he says, uh, they've, it's quite progressive. The women don't wear white. They're widows, but they don't wear white. They can, they're, essentially they're encouraged to live a more normal life, you might say. Uh, and in one of these uh, two ashrams, they are very focused on engaging the women in various activities, uh, especially arts and crafts, producing things, doing things. Uh, so it all sounds very um, progressive. And I forget which of the two, but in one of them they take, they accept unwanted children. Um, and they raise them, and they train these children. And here's the thing that really struck me, was that he said, next to the gate of this ashram, there's a small house, um, a room, directly next to the gate. And opening to the outside, Opening to the outside, um, to the to the road, is a window, which is open, and inside the room, just below the window, is a crib, a little bed for babies, so anyone can come any time of day or night, and leave their baby there. <laughs> but I've heard this is also common in some, um, some uh, Catholic Christian places in Europe. Yeah. Anyway, I, I, this was the first time I heard of that. I thought that's <laughs> interesting. So we know, we know about unwanted uh, children, but we have a different sense of unwanted than what Prabhupada seems to be speaking about here. <laughs> he's, he's saying anyone of mixed... Now, it's a little more complicated than this uh, if we were to look at the Manasamhita, which is one of the Dharma Shastras, it's become, in some sense, the Dharma Shastra that everyone quotes, although there are others. But in the Manu Samhita, Manu Dharma Shastra, uh, it gives specifications. Um, a child from the uh, union of a Brahmin man and a Kshatriya, or 
vice versa, or, and then it'll go through all the different combination options, and it'll say what sort of status that um, child has. So it gets quite complicated. In any case, um, what does Krishna then, uh, what does Arjuna then say about this? Uh, in the next verse, Sankara, Naraka, Narakaya Eva, Kula Gnanam, Kula Sicha, an increase of unwanted population certainly causes hellish life, both for the family and for those who destroy the family tradition. So what he's describing is, is a kind of, uh, we might want to say, domino effect, you know, dominoes. You line up, you know what a domino is, little chips with numbers. You line them all up, you push one, it pushes the next, and they all fall over. <laughs> so he's saying you know, there's going to be a major effect to what we're doing here, engaging in this war. And uh, this is, you know, this is why I don't want to fight. Well, as we know, Krishna is going to not be very impressed <laughs> with all of his arguments. It, it's, it seems in one sense that Krishna is going to ignore his arguments. When he says, Asojanam, Asochasam, Pragyavadams, Chavasya say, You're speaking learned words, Pragyavada. Um, but then he dismisses, Gadasam, Agadasam, Cha, Na Anusochanti, Pandita. A pandit doesn't talk like this. You're thinking you're sounding like a big pandit, but you're no pandit. It's pretty. Harsh, what he's saying. Um, and I would, it seems to me, one way to understand this is because Krishna is giving, Arjuna is implying a certain type of ethics, and Krishna is implying a completely other kind of ethics. Remember, ethics was about um, normative ethics is about what what should I do, what is the right thing to do in order for the good to resolve. Now, <clears throat> what Arjuna is um, arguing in modern terms, you could call it consequentialism consequentialist ethics. Um, there's consequentialists who say, how do we know what to do is we have to consider what are going to be the results. Sounds reasonable, right? We don't just do things and then whatever happens, happens. No, we think what's going to be the consequence of that. That seems reasonable. That's what uh, Arjuna seems to be uh, doing. But then what's Krishna doing? What is Krishna's angle? Well, in, 
<clears throat> in modern jargon, <laughs> you could say he is taking a deontological ethical position. Deontological ethics is basically saying you can never know what the consequences of your actions are going to be. You cannot calculate. There can be so many things that happen, you'll never know. Therefore, you have to know what is your duty and act according to your duty. Because this is what Krishna is going to be saying. You're a chakshya. Your duty as a chakshya in this circumstance is to fight. It's as simple as that. Not considering the consequence. And if you want to consider the consequence, <laughs> Krishna says, uh, there's two possibilities of what's going to happen as far as you're concerned. Either you're going to win, and then you'll get the kingdom. Remember, that was what this was all about in the beginning. Or, you'll be killed. And if you're killed, you've, you've made it as a Kshatriya, and you couldn't ask for a better situation. You're for sure you're going to start it. So he doesn't, he doesn't say, yeah, don't worry about those Varnasankara, don't worry about the hellish conditions, don't worry about... He doesn't even say that. He just ignores and says, this is your duty, and you should do this. Sometimes, um, one sort of subdivision of deontological ethics is what's called divine command ethics. And divine command ethics is probably just exactly what you think it is. <laughs> God commands, and that is decisive. Well, in the Bhagavad Gita, it's not quite that simple. If it were that simple, then the Bhagavad Gita could end um, with chapter 2. You know, Krishna has told Arjuna, you should fight. And then maybe we could jump uh, to the end. And he says, Sarvadharma, <laughs> But uh, there's a lot in between those. Why? Because uh, Krishna is not just giving a command, just do it and don't think. He's encouraging him to think. And this is where Bhagavad Gita is not comparable uh, to the situation that was argued in the Nuremberg trials after World War II and uh, uh, the actions of those who were involved in uh, the Holocaust. Um, where the claim was being made as a defense uh, for killing so many people, innocent people, the claim was, I was simply following orders. And the, uh, the judge or judges determined that that is not a valid argument. They could not use that as a defense. Um, 
someone to say, oh, this Bhagavad Gita, Krishna is saying, you know, just get up and fight, kill. And that's the same thing. Uh, somebody could do anything, um, any horrible acts, based and saying, well, Krishna told me. But that's not, um, that would be an extremely superficial and mistaken idea of Krishna. And in this case, Yes, Krishna is making a command, and what does he say to Arjuna in the end? So, now, deliberate over what I have uh, said, and then you decide what to do. So he leaves the responsibility to, Krishna, to Arjuna. Yeah. Uh, Okay, those are a few points, so I think I'll stop there. We can see if there's some reflections. Yes, I knew I had the question. You were first. <laughs> there are a couple of thoughts. I have to choose for one. We are actually, in modern times, faced with a similar situation concerning the destruction of family and family traditions. We are living in times where there's a lot of change going on and also concerning the tradition, so, how to say, so much as of the tradition we have in Western countries of family structures. Mm -hmm. So this is already quite destroyed and we see, I think, the results also of that. But there's even further uh, advancement towards this goal of complete dissolution of, of family structure which gives some more identity and power to the people in one sense. And uh, because of this individualization and uh, micro-families or micro-structures, people lose also the, the strength and become more victims when you have power structures. Yeah. What would you say to that? Um, yes, I would say that is going on. <laughs> it's, um, yeah, you know, sociologists and others, they're trying to figure out how this is all happening. Um, one can point the finger to technology. So, yeah, the atomization of society. Um, the, the nuclear family is even breaking. Uh, there's no more family. And this, uh, yeah, this, this makes um, on the one side, celebrating individualism, and and the other side, uh, the, uh, it's, it's intensifying the helplessness of individuals. And yes, as we said, it's uh, resulting in various power structures uh, dominating everyone. An interesting analysis I came across um, for what it's worth is making a distinction between the private sphere and public sphere where the private private sphere is um, uh, the sphere of the family especially and the public sphere is the public marketplace essentially And this analysis I came across was saying 
The problem is that the corporate sphere, as a kind of third entity, has entered into and taken considerable position in the private sphere. And the corporate, the corporate sphere uh, becomes very powerful because of that. Uh, how that's, how, what are the long-term consequences of that? What are the consequences of any technology we never know? And that's one of the arguments, you could say, from the deontological side of, of ethics, saying your consequentialism is not going to help you understand what's going to happen uh, with your technology. Wasn't it uh, in the news recently that Italy, the Italian government decided, I don't know to what extent, but in some, um, some extent to outlaw uh, the use of this um, artificial intelligence, which is now all the, all the rage, because um, I thought that's interesting, because they see, oh, this, is, this can have dire consequences. This is maybe a, a tangent from that, but I was just reading um, a candidate for whom uh, decided to do a little experiment with, what is it called? Chat? Chat GBT. Yeah. So he asked the question to this Chat GBT, GBT um, what's the difference according to the teachings of A.C. Bhaktivedanta Swami Prabhupada? What is the difference between the word between Jagat and Brahmanda. So it cranked out a nice little essay, which sounded kind of impressive, except for one problem. It was obvious to a Kundali that it had confused the word Brahmanda with Brahman. So then, after this, then a candidate wrote, uh, excuse me, but you've, you know, confused these two words. And then the machine says, oh, I'm so sorry, you're right. And then it goes on and makes the same mistake again. And he does that like three times. <laughs> and finally the candidate just said, okay, forget it. <laughs> So that can be dangerous because someone can think, you know, this is giving absolute truth or something. And uh, yeah, there are consequences. But back to families and the disintegration and so on of families. I was um, just a couple of weeks ago in Slovenia. Um, Bhaktatande, uh, there he is. He happens to know the one of the former prime ministers of Slovenia, and he arranged for me to meet him. 
very nice, very nice man. He's a vegetarian, very pious, very, uh, very sincere and humble. He was asking me questions, and one question he was asking was about this. He said, "What?" Because he's now um, the um, the uh, director, the chief of a school of law. Uh, so he's in a responsible position, school of law. In, I guess it's the main school of law in Slovenia. And, uh, you know, he's, he's concerned about these public things which uh, have effect on the public. So he was asking about this. Um, Artificial intelligence. I just made this point that we don't know the consequences. Uh, we have to be careful. But uh, to fail, yeah, he was also asking about <coughs> uh, what to say to his small children um, regarding uh, uh, transgender. Because he said this has also become a very strange thing with quite aggressive, um, quite aggressive behavior by some people uh, pushing for a sort of erasure, I guess, of gender difference, something like that. So he's also worried. <laughs> What is, what's, what is becoming of us? Yeah, I think Srila uh, Vyasadeva will just be shaking his head. <laughs> but I explained to him, there's, with anything like this, there's a, there's a good element, and then the rest is sort of lost to the lower modes of nature. So in this case, the, the higher principle is equality of you know, seeing all persons as of the same value, the same quality. That's a good idea. That's aiming toward a spiritual understanding. But then taking that and um, mixing it into Rajasic and Tamasic ways of behavior and so on, and it spoils the whole thing, and it becomes a case of throwing the baby out with the bathwater. Confirmed. The baby says, don't throw me out. <laughs> yeah. So your question was, what about this? And my answer is, indeed, what about this? Go <laughs> <laughs> with this. You have a question. Uh, I, had, uh, I found very interesting you were saying that uh, sometimes you might feel that it's better to recommend people to skip the first chapter. Mm -hmm. um, but uh, sometimes I encountered uh, interesting the opposite, that people 
when I was distributing books in the streets, they were telling me, but the first chapter was very interesting um, because a lot of action was about to, about to happen and he's not going to fight. And then in the beginning of the second chapter, <laughs> he's supposed to fight. <laughs> so, yeah, maybe it could be flagrant. Well, when you meet such a person, tell them, yeah, I can tell you, I really like the Mahabharata. <laughs> So here's a Mahabharata. <laughs> yeah, because of course the Bhagavad Gita is a kind of um, it's a kind of interlude in the action of the Mahabharata. The war is about to begin. Um, and what's been leading up to the war is all quite, quite fascinating. How Krishna was trying to negotiate a peace and then he failed and so on. All the intrigues. Of so that's um, some people, some people like that. Um, and the Bhagavad Gita is, yeah, in a way you could say the Bhagavad Gita is more for those who can appreciate the, um, let's say, existential pain that Arjuna is feeling. Because he's really come to this point, and he reiterates uh, this. <coughs> In uh, well, four verses. Guruna hatvahi mahanu avan shreya bhoktumba chamati aloke. Better to live in this world by begging than to live at the cost of the lives of great souls who are my teachers. Nachaita vidma katarano gariyo yadva chayema yadivano chayeyu. Yaneva hatva najijiva samas te avasita pramukhe dartarastra. Nor do we know which is better, conquering them or being conquered by them. We shouldn't care to live if they are killed. And then he makes his famous uh, request to Krishna, karpanya dosha upahata sulava. My sabhava is, um, is torn apart, it's being afflicted by this Karpanya Nusha. I'm just really, um, I'm, I'm completely internally disoriented, destroyed. Nahi prapasyami manapanudyat yat shokam utchosham indriyanam avapiluma vasapatnam vridham cha amrajam suranam apicha aripatyam. I find no means to drive away this grief. 
which is drying up my senses. Even if I win a prosperous, unrivaled kingdom on earth with sovereignty like the demigods of life. I mean, that's really getting right to the bone of, um, you can say, the existential uh, angst of, of, the, of a human being. So unless one can appreciate that, they may not get it, what's going, what's Krishna doing here. So that's okay, read the Mahabharata, <laughs> and then maybe eventually appreciate what Krishna's saying. I think also because they they, they might uh, like identify with the arguments of Arjuna mm -hmm. and then they, they can immediately appreciate why Krishna is not you know uh, responding. So because the arguments seem very sensible and very yeah um, good, moral, you know, we should not fight. So that, that people are confused you know, and they can immediately appreciate why Krishna is Dismissing. Yeah, it's not easy to appreciate because it does seem, um, it does seem in a way like Krishna is even out of touch with reality. It's like Arjuna is, seems to represent being quite um, connected with reality and uh, and. Krishna seems to be the one who's out of touch because he doesn't seem to care what's going to happen. So that's true. Um, what to do? <laughs> so the, the, the ethics, if we get back to um, this subject of um, ethical understanding, analysis, and so on. And the, the subject, of course, that, exactly that subject is also been written a lot about in context of the Gita. But um, there's an interesting way that I've read an explanation of bhakti uh, ethics, that whereas consequentialism or deontology or uh, what's called virtue ethics, or there's ethics of care, uh, there's, there's, uh, there's a variety of different approaches. Um, but, but the ethics of bhakti is a kind of collapsing of the, the right and the good. I mentioned before, the idea with ethics, ethics is usually to uh, deliberate what is the right thing to do to bring about the good. And with, um, with bhakti, the right is the good, and the good is the right. And it's based on um, the notion of there being a right and good person, namely the Supreme Person, whom one is following and 
aspiring to, not to imitate, but to act in relation to. And that's where I, I have written, um, instead of talking about to, divine command, which uh, divine command uh, theory has one problem, and that is the question of whether something is good just because it's been commanded by God. You know, why is this good? Well, God commanded it. So, for example, in Jewish tradition, uh, one of the commandments is to observe this, the Shabbat, the Sabbath day, once a week. And they're very, you know, the Orthodox are very strict to not do any work on that day. Um, it leads to some very interesting complications for them. But anyway, uh, so it's God's command, it's good, we just do it. No questions. It seems to me what we have in the bhakti tradition is not divine. Oh, I was going to say, or is it that God commands something because he is responding to some notion of good? You see the difference? One is, is saying, I say to do this, and you're wondering why, and I'm saying it's good because I say it's good. And the other way is saying, I'm saying doing the, do this because I'm the best judge of what's good. I think there's a third option, and that is, it's not divine command, it's divine preference. God likes it when you make an offering of <laughs> He prefers that to you're not offering it, or he prefers um, certain, he's, he prefers certain things and he doesn't prefer certain other things, and bhakti is being interested to find out what Krishna likes and what he doesn't like. This reminds me of this interesting, uh, I think it's in a section about it in the 18th chapter where Krishna is saying, don't disturb the ignorant. Mm -hmm. And this could be a divine command. And then Srila Prabhupada in the purpose says, but we know what Krishna really wants. He wants us to, you know, bring everyone to Krishna, so we take the risk. <laughs> so that's, this is something what you were saying, maybe the divine command, but maybe even if you command, there is a preference that might be a higher purpose. Yeah. So the devotee understands with the inner wishes of Krishna, so he goes against the commands. Yeah. And... Vedam <laughs> Janayet. But, yeah, another way of saying that, as the Christians say, is... Uh, to take the spirit of the law, not the letter of the law. Right. Yeah.
uh, yes, uh, I heard from uh, uh, some people in uh, Sweden actually uh, around 2010 when it was for artificial intelligence. You said that uh, uh, we don't know how it will end up. You said, and uh, actually those people in Sweden I was uh, uh, where I was uh, staying in a commune. Uh, quite a few times actually, uh, talk about uh, the year 2048, which is only 25 years from now, in the future of course, uh, that it will, the whole system of uh, computers will start to collapse. Well, what is uh, what you have to say about it? Thank well, you. let's see what happens in the year 2048. <laughs> um, yeah. I, you know, I don't have a crystal ball to see what's going to happen. I do remember, many of you may remember just before, uh, it was 1999, and some, many people were predicting that all the computers uh, were going to collapse because they didn't know how to change the date, how to change the date to 2000, right? I have, I have one god brother was really an anxiety about this. He thought the whole world was going to collapse. And uh, I don't know, it seems like we just kind of woke up the next morning and life went on. <laughs> Nothing much happened. One two million dollar painting was stolen that night out of the Ashmolean museum in Oxford by someone who was very clever. Um, that's all I remember. Maharaj, <laughs> you, you were talking about this divine will or divine command. Um, seems implied that Krishna wanted Arjuna to fight. Still, Arjuna at some point tells him that uh, I'm confused, I don't know what's the best for me, so please tell me, what, tell me what is the good for me. And then later on, Krishna tells him, you should fight, and Sele goes on and trying to convince him. So, my question is that if we are supposed, as far as I understand, to pray actually for this guidance or for this divine command about what is our duty in life, then why did Arjuna wait until his very last doubt was technically vanished until he actually acted? So, should we take this as an example? Um. I think we can understand that Arjuna is, of course, in a sense, representing also all of us in our doubts. And so he's uh, allowing, he's encouraging Krishna to give a more substantial explanation. He's, uh, Krishna's taking the opportunity uh, to give an ex exposition uh, over 18 chapters, it's quite thorough in explaining why why it makes sense for Arjuna to act as he considers would be right for him, and by transposition, how we can understand what what is right for us to do. 
Um, so, I suppose you could make an argument of how the Bhagavad Gita could be condensed to make the point. And people make condensations of right, you know, summaries and such. Um, but of course, Krishna's taking opportunity to explain a lot of things, especially about the modes of nature in chapters 14 and 17, part of 18. Um, he's taking opportunity to explain, yeah, getting back to Krishna's preference, uh, the last part of chapter 12, those who uh, are you know, behaving in certain ways are especially pleasing to Krishna. So. And Krishna is also doing a lot of synthesizing in the Bhagavad Gita. He's bringing together a lot of different ideas, in a sense, from different quarters. Uh, there's Sankhya on one side, there's Vedanta. To bring Sankhya and Vedanta together is um, it's um, superficially it's not so easy to do because they have two very different uh, starting points. Um, and he's bringing ideas like yajna into the into the conversation, giving a kind of new idea of what is yajna. Yajna is not just about making fires. <laughs> Anashrita karma balam karyam karma karodhya sasanyasi chayogi chanamiravnirna chakriya. Um, and he's giving a new idea of what means sannyasa. There are several terms which he is kind of redefining in the Bhagavad Gita, all in terms of devotional service, we can say. So there's a lot happening in the Gita. He even plays with some terminology that's popular for the Buddhists. Uh, the word prajna is uh, it's it's a big it's a favorite it's a buzzword in Buddhist uh, writings. The word nirvana, of course, and then Krishna in the fifth chapter toward the end uh, talks about Brahma nirvana. Gacchati uh, one goes to Brahma nirvana. Like that. Is that okay? No. So should we, should for, should we follow the order? Still while having doubts? Should we wait and test the order? Uh huh. Oh, um. Well, it sort of depends. There's some circumstances where it might be good to just go ahead and do, as Prabhupada would say, do the needful, and then later work on the doubts. <laughs> Especially when 
you know, things are happening, something needs to be done, and then, okay, okay, we do it, and then... But as I said, if it's something which seriously, you, you feel a serious doubt about, if you were in Germany in 1942 or whatever, you were in that position, being commanded, you know, to just go and, and kill people, uh, one after another, innocent people, they're not, they're not soldiers. Um, you might say, well, I can't do that. Um, which may have the consequence that they will kill you, but maybe that's the best in that circumstance. Let them take the karma for killing you first, <laughs> and you may become liberated in the process <laughs> for refusing to do something amoral. Um, you know, but if it's just uh, something more with with less deep consequences, less serious consequences. And you might say, okay, I'm going to do it today, and then we're going to, then let's discuss some more. <laughs> let's uh, consider this further. So, yeah, it was, um, we were talking about this a little earlier. Is, um, there's two things. There's do the needful, and there's also well, what is my svadharma? What is my calling in life? Oh, do the needful. We need to wash the pots. <laughs> is that my svadharma? <clears throat> well, it may not be your svadharma, but you're really good at washing pots, so let's go wash the pots. <laughs> um, and so on. And then gradually we may understand better. And Krishna may give us opportunities for doing what we understand is more our svadharma. But um, we have Krishna's teachings and we have um, <coughs> we have Lord Chaitanya's teachings, we have uh, the followers of Lord Chaitanya's teachings, Srila Rupa Goswami gives, a, gives us a lot to keep busy with in understanding how to practice bhakti. Just, just his little Upadeshamrita can keep us quite busy with its only 11 verses. And then there's uh, the whole Bhakti Rasamrita Sindhu, and I may have mentioned this last time, but um, the Australian DVT is producing a five-volume Bhaktir Samhita Sindhu with commentaries, with word-for-word -word translations of all the verses, translations, commentaries of Jiva Goswami, Vishwana Chakravarti Thakur, extensive indexing, so that will keep us busy. <laughs> but don't say, 
Oh, I'm sorry, Prabhu, I can't do any service because first I have to see how to surrender. And to do that, I need to read five volumes of the Bhaktivedanta. Then I have to read the 12 cantos of Bhagavatam. Then I have to read uh, the how many volumes, Chaitanya chart. And then I'll let you know if I'm ready to do some service. <laughs> uh, yeah, okay. <laughs> That's one way to do it. But by that time, you might be too old to do any service. <laughs> oh, I'm sorry, Prabhu, now I get, I'm too sick. <laughs> Can't do anything. <laughs> <clears throat> yeah. Smartavya satatam vishnor vismartavya najatujit. Sarve vidini shaitasure tayore Two rules. Always uh, remember Vishnu and never forget Vishnu. All the other rules are just servants of these two rules. Right. Any questions, comments on the ladies? Not a hearty Mataji. No? Okay. Akila from actually you minor minor idea you quoted Arjuna lamenting that he would have to kill his his family his opposing family members but isn't it that Arjuna mainly rejected the idea of of killing Bhishma and Drona who were favorable towards their cause that the Pandavas was yeah, Arisudana. Oh, oh Lord, Arisudana, how can I oppose Vishma uh, and Drona with arrows? And then we just said, Druna Hatva Ni Mahan Bhagavan Shreya Bhutan Vaishnava. <clears throat> Killing of the gurus, what kind of way is that? Yeah. Um, but he does mention all of his other family members. He says, Killing of uh, his cousins is also for him a problem. Now it's interesting, another point um, is that context can change. And so with as we as, as we read uh, the Bhagavad Gita, for example, the conclusion that we may have now as a result of this reading could be different from what it is at another time in our lives. And the example is Arjuna. Arjuna's conclusion was, as he was hearing from Krishna, oh, 
I better stand up and fight. But then, it's mentioned in the Bhagavatam, however many years later it was, as um, Krishna has departed, Arjuna, you know, is devastated. He's failed to protect uh, Krishna's wives. Um, he remembers Krishna's instructions. And it's understood that means he remembers Bhagavad Gita. But at that time, his conclusion is not, oh, therefore I have to stand up and fight. No, his conclusion is, now it's time to retire. From the same instructions, he gets a different conclusion. Yeah. On that happy note, Grandavas in the Bhagavad Gita, Ki, Shiva, 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 Shiva